Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 144 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, this is the Milt Stiegel episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that a receiver of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, by the name of Milt Stiegel, holds the Canadian Football League record with 144 touchdowns. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, and with that, reaching out to our Canadian friends' information, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us from the lovely land of California, our resident Sony employee is, of course, Tim, the non-Canadian. Ditto. How how are you doing, sir? Good, 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 good. Saddened that the Memorial Day break is over. Um, yeah, I had a, I had to go back to work today, and that was overall sad. But life must go on, I suppose. This is true. How was your Memorial Day holiday? I mean, you sound a little bit sickly. Did you party yourself? Under the weather? Uh, yeah, just some allergy crap. Came down with some allergy crap today, so definitely uh, not feeling the one hundred percent I normally am feeling. Uh, but yesterday was great. Uh, spent time with the fam. Got to bust out the grill and do the steak action and drink many beers. So I was definitely good. Oh, and speaking of beers, uh, turns out that my beer guy. Uh, actually started listening to the show and he heard last week's episode and decided that he would like to be called Mr. Beer. And so now the artist formerly known as the beer guy, Mr. Beer, he actually provided me with uh, a different hard root beer. And this was the, this ain't your father's root beer. And so I tried that uh, just before we started recording, and so I wanted to let you know that I tried that. Thank you, of course, Mr. Beer. And uh, it was not very tasty, because it's a straight-up ale that's been spiced to taste like root beer, instead of actually, I don't know, brewing it right and you know letting it ferment or however the other guys did it. The Coney Island stuff was amazing, um, but this Not Your Father's Root Beer was... Just not as good. So it wasn't quite your father's root beer. I'm sure it still wasn't my father's root beer, but if it was, I wouldn't have wanted it. Maybe it was your father's root beer from like 25 years ago that was just kind of left (laughs) sitting out, you know, like in the sun baking for a couple decades. It is entirely possible. Entirely possible. Ah, but, uh, well, cool. So we have a whole lot of show to get to. So, uh, do we want to go ahead and uh, get into the mailbag, as it were? Oh, yes. Because we actually have email this week. Uh, somewhat, yes, we have uh, some Twitter, we, we have some followers to tell you about, and actual email that um, was sent to us. And that email, of course, is the show at slscast.com. So, here we go. We're going to dive right in. First up, we have a new Twitter follower. This is at BJ underscore Duval. It turns out that BJ happens to be a novice comics creator, CTL volunteer, vegetarian, feminist, and 
LGBTQ supporter. Look out. And uh, apparently BJ comes to us from Michigan. So, yay, BJ. Thank you very much for following. I actually was good this time and got on Twitter because BJ followed me as well. I as I can only presume that BJ also followed you, Tim. Um, and I was good and got on there and thanked BJ for the follow. Will you, will you stop say. saying BJ? <laughs> <laughs> no, I because I know where your mind goes. I know so you, I must you're molesting my ear with, with, with naughty thoughts. <laughs> well, maybe BJ can tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Now, we, uh, we now have a BJ episode. There you go. Uh, and then, of course, coming to us, we, we even have now through Podbean, because as anyone who pays the slightest bit of attention to where their browser goes when they put in slscast.com, it, it actually goes to our Podbean site. And so we actually have a follower through Podbean now. So, yay, this is cool. Uh, we have a Daniel underscore Kilpatrick 2001. And thank you very, very much, Daniel, for that follow. That is outstanding. So we have two followers. New, yay, exciting. And then, of course, to the actual email. And then, of course, is our wonderful Diana, who actually takes the time to email us and, again, reminds us why we pay for this at all. So thank you, Diana, in, uh, up front, because we love that you send us email. She says, hey, guys, did I hear a hint of a shout out to me as your favorite listener? I'm going with that. So I feel obligated to comment on the bachelorette party phenomenon. My theory is that women who haven't had a chance to fly their freak flag take these parties as a chance to get their yayas out. Guys seem to have more chances to do that, so the stag parties are more tame. Cheers, Diana. Well, Diana, as always, you know, we, we have to make sure that we keep it just ambiguous enough um, to make sure that uh, our favorite listener will always know who he or she is. But we're glad that you are going with it. And I'm not sure. What do you think, Tim? Do you agree? Is it just because ladies do not often get to let their freak flag fly, as Diana so eloquently put it? I, I don't know, Diana. That sounds like you're trying to give yourself a reason for doing all the naughty stuff that we all know you do <laughs> every single night. That's right, Diana. <laughs> oh, man. And, and we didn't hear it from Steve's and the Kitty either. No, no, not, not not at all. They they had, they didn't tell. <laughs> they didn't say anything about your tassel fetish, your tassel and whistle fetish. No, no, they're not called tassels. They're called yayas. Oh yes, yayas. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, as, again, thank you very much, Diana. Uh, glad you're listening. If you, of course, have anything that you want to say to us or not say to us or tell us how good, bad, or otherwise, or just an opinion to throw in like Diana did, please feel free to send us an email to the show at slscast.com. So moving on, I guess we have um, some news to get to. Do we not, sir? We do, but a quick question to Diana, real quick, just so we can we can have another email next week. <laughs> um, cool. <laughs> how common is it for ladies to practice the art 
of picking up bottles between their legs. I will leave that up to interpretation. I understand, uh, as a matter of fact, funny thing we should talk about this today. I heard about this earlier today, that that is a popular thing that some ladies do like to play at their female gatherings. Yes, like they they play music and the it's it's like a very sexy duck duck a very sexily uncomfortable <laughs> duck duck deuce or duck duck deuce uh. duck duck goose where they go around and once the music stops and if the bottle is underneath them they have to give the old squatter Rooney and clench the neck and pick her up. I thought we agreed that that was now called Mav Mav Goose or. Or Goose Goose Dead. Goose Goose Dead, like yes. Ah, or, or okay. yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, there you go, Diana. That's your homework for the week. <laughs> now that we've lost yet another listener. Uh, do you want, do you want, Send all your want pictures to and videos to Johnny Whitrash at... <laughs> you never know. He might already have that. He probably does. I, I, I think he has pictures and video you of know, himself oh, doing You know it. who we need, though? We definitely need uh, Raphael and R2, because if anybody has that, they are going to have it. Is it because it, one sure. is German? Is, is that? I'm not saying anything. I don't think the Germans are crazy there. enough to squat down on a bottle to see who could pick it up and carry it around the room. Well, okay, <sighs> hang on. Thinking about it a little bit more, probably so. So Maybe. Well... Okay, cool. So, news? Yeah. <laughs> yes, here we go, folks. It's the news. Alright, uh, so first up from me from Metro.co.uk by way of Anne Lee for Metro.co.uk. Train Spotting 2 is happening. Danny Boyle confirms original cast are returning. Yes, you heard it right, folks. Danny Boyle's uh, has revealed that a sequel to Train Spotting will be his next project once its four lead actors coordinate their schedules. The British director confirmed that original cast members Ewan McGregor, uh, Ewan Brenner, I'm sorry, Bremner, Johnny Lee Miller, and Robert Carlyle would be back for the eagerly awaited follow up. That is going to be exciting. Yes, Boyle described the script written by John Hodge as terrific. It will be based on author Irving uh, Welsh's follow-up to Train Spotting, Porno, and pick up on the same characters ten years after the first film. The director re- uh, revealed previously that he wanted a sequel out in 2016 to coincide with the original's 20th anniversary. Wow. So this ought to be interesting. 20 years, it's going to be at least 20 years later, but they're only going to be playing 10 years older. Wow. That's going to be interesting. What do you think, Tim? Are you excited by this news? I'm actually currently looking up to see what porno is about because I have no idea. Let's see. Well, it's usually about two people who really love each other. And pick up bottles. Yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see here. Uh, for those of you who do not know, porno is a book, uh, quoting Wikipedia right here, 
book describes the characters of train spotting 10 years after the events of the earlier book as their paths cross again this time with the pornography business as the backdrop rather than heroin use although numerous drugs particularly cocaine are mentioned throughout a number of characters from glue make an appearance as well this sequel picks up ideas of the film adaptation of Train Spotting. One example is the fact that Spud has received his share of the drug money, which is shown in the film, but only alluded to in the book. So, could be there could be interesting. Go. Yeah. Right on. All right, Will, what do you have for us, sir, sir? All right, first up here is actually a bit of real news. Uh, real news as in CNN news via CNN.com. Ex-Labor Department employee admits bootleg movie operation. This is written by Samantha Rees. And this actually came out on September 5th of this year. Obviously, I guess I'm not going to report on anything from September of last year. Anyways, from Washington, a former longtime Labor Department employee admitted Friday to running a bootleg movie operation within within the department's headquarters in Washington. Ricardo Taylor, a three-decade labor veteran who was the supervisor of the department's mailroom, will serve 24 months probation with no prison time after pleading guilty to a federal charge of copyright law violation. According to court documents, Taylor, 57, used a five-bay DVD burner to copy and then sell pirated movies. Court documents say that Taylor began his operation as early as 2008, and he ran the pirating operation during work hours, selling his colleagues' pirated DVDs for 4 or $5 each. As part of the operation, Taylor took advantage of his Department of Labor email and contacts in order to help his colleagues place their orders, authorities said. In 2013 alone, Taylor's last year in the Labor Department he made more than 19000 bucks from his pirating scheme, copying and selling 1,268 copies to his colleagues. It was not clear when Taylor was charged. A message left with his attorney late Friday afternoon was not immediately returned. In addition to his job at the Labor Department, Taylor was also a manager of a movie theater over the past decade. Court documents state that Taylor kept a ledger of his sales, including his customers' names. This list has not been released to the public. End the article there. Wow. I mean, two, two things. Okay, for one thing, this guy is ridiculous. He works in a, in a, in a government office. <laughs> the Department of Labor. Yet... As he's pirating these movies, selling to, selling these pirated movies, he's totally acting and running this scheme as a government employee. Like, holy shit. I know I've come across people that illegally downloaded stuff and, and even, like, sell stuff to people at their work and whatnot. I mean, unfortunately, uh, that is a common thing that does happen. But never have I heard of people keeping a ledger of the people who they sell what movie to and how many copies. It's ridiculous. I mean, does he have a separate account that says illegal pirating money? I don't know. Matt, what do you think? Do you have any comments or questions or concerns about maybe even the mental health of this particular guy? 
I'm just impressed that, you know, as someone working for the government, he was caught at all. I mean, that's just, that's amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I thought for sure, you know, that he would be able to do that for another 10 or 15 years. No, no, I mean, it sucks. It's kind of a weird situation all the way around, but, at, you know, at least he got caught. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, last but uh, not least from me, from Inquisitor.com. And I do not see... Uh, try and down. Ah, yes, from Matt Van Uytert. I hope I'm saying that correctly. If not, I apologize for butchering the name. James Franco to teach at high school. Advises fans, quote, take advantage, end quote, of technology to make art. James Franco, yes, very, ladies and gentlemen, you're hearing that correctly. James Franco is going back to school. To teach, that is. Some lucky students in Palo Alto, California, will have the opportunity to learn film from, from Franco. Wow, saying that three times fast? Film from Franco? <laughs> Who's taking on 24 protégés for a semester, reports The Hollywood Reporter. On Friday, September 4th, James announced via Instagram that he's teaching, quote, an eight-part film course for high school students, end quote. Starting September 13th, students will learn how to make their own film, which will then be shown at a film festival. And James, whose latest film, Everything Will Be Fine, will premiere at the Toronto Film Festival, wasn't kidding when he encouraged the kids to sign up immediately. So, yeah, this is pretty cool. Um, I am... uh, pretty impressed that he's actually taking time to really go through and you know help kids learn how to make film and all that kind of stuff so i'm i'm down what do you think there tim yeah no that's pretty cool uh what school was he going to be doing this through again palo alto high school ah yes yeah 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 because that's i think that's where he's from i think that's pretty cool it's important for people like him who talk about doing film and actually, he—I mean, he—he he is technically an artist, even though he. Kind of, well, I guess you can even go off of uh, the movie *This Is the End*, where he kind of pokes fun at himself by saying that, like, "Ooh, everything is art. You masturbate, that is art. You do this, that is art. You fart, that is art." <laughs> well, he's doing that because he's actually kind of an artist, and he's known for doing a lot of really strange things and attributing that to an art form, I guess. So. I really do hope this is something that he carries out from start to finish because it would be cool to see if not him do this stuff more in the future, but even other actors jumping on board and uh, in teaching their craft to younger folks. And not just for a TV show either, like Project Greenlight, which I think Project Greenlight's great, but it shouldn't be a reality TV show. It should be kids in a classroom actually learning how to make a movie or how to be an actor or just do all that stuff. So it's pretty cool. I mean, good for him. I Hopefully it, he follows through with it. Well, very cool. All right, man. Well, that's my news. So wrap up the news for us there, sir. Okie dokie. From Vulture.com, Chinese censors approve first gay love story in a movie. And this is actually a big deal for Chinese censors to actually do this. Uh, This is an article written by Nate Jones, again from Vulture. After refusing to allow films about gay couples to open in theaters for years, Chinese censors this week approved the release of Wang Chao's Sikh McCartney, 
a romance about a secret interracial relationship between two men. The film is a joint Chinese-French co-production, which experts say improved its chances at getting a theatrical release. China sets a cap on the number of foreign films allowed to screen in theaters. Though Wang praised the move on Weibo as, quote, a big step for the members of the film industry, end quote, gay rights activists aren't too sure. As filmmaker fan Popo told the AFP, quote, the fact that this film can be released in theaters doesn't mean gay films in the future will be able to be released in China. China's system for evaluating films is still very unstable because the rules are very unclear. It depends heavily on the individual censor's whims, end quote. Homosexuality was decriminalized in China in 1997, but electroshock conversion therapy remained legal until this year, end all quotes. Uh, but yeah, that, I mean, that's an interesting point. But then again, for change to happen, it does take time. I mean, it, it's fair and unfair because what do I know? I mean, I don't, I don't really follow this too closely. But though I think it's kind of unfair for him to say that, like what he said, the quote, the fact that the film can be released in theaters doesn't mean gay rights or gay films in the future will be allowed to be released in China, he does kind of have a point. Because they just might be allowing them to do this because it is a co-financed production between a Chinese company and a French company. You know, really, I guess we'll just see in the near future. But regardless, it is important, it is cool, and it is a step towards progress for the uh, Chinese film community. Again, that was from Vulture.com. Chinese censors approve first gay love story in a movie. And that would be my news. Awesome. All right. Well, we are doing kind of a special discussions uh, this week for our bonus segment. And um, we are going to be discussing, um, really, I, I mean, I guess we could, Pretty much just say it's a retrospective on the films of Wes Craven, who passed away last week at the age of 76 from brain cancer. So, Tim, why don't you go ahead and lead us off, guide us, if you will, through the films that you would like to discuss on this this retrospective. All righty, Wes Craven... What a very interesting filmmaker he was. Uh, he is a very good filmmaker, but early on in life, he wasn't actually planning on being a filmmaker, a director, or even you know, a writer or producer or whatnot. Uh, he was born in 1939 in a little, little place that you might have heard of called Cleveland, Ohio, in the U.S. of A. For a little while, he taught an English class at Westminster College, before he acquired a 16-millimeter film camera where he began to experiment with the making of short films. And of course, if you know anything about George Lucas or Steven Spielberg or even Tim Burton, J.J. Abrams, uh, more modern filmmakers, Chris Nolan even, they knew they wanted to be directors when they got their first 16-millimeter camera. When they first held that and they got to shoot their own home movies, that's where they developed the love of that craft. Of course, like every great, well-known film director that went on to have a lengthy yet successful career, they 
fell in love with that 16 millimeter camera and decided, you know what, maybe I could make a living actually pursuing this. And that's kind of what he did. A good friend of his by the name of Chom, uh, Chom, uh, Tom Chapin, Tom Chapin told him about a messenger position that opened up at a post-production company that was located in New York City. So he moved to Manhattan, to New York City, uh, where his first job in that industry was as a sound editor for Chapman's post-production firm. And that is where his story began. What, what I really liked about Wes Craven is his range of films, uh, his range of horror films, because I guess that's really what he's known for, and really his entire filmography are horror films. But before he was known for directing Nightmare on Elm Street, the Freddy Krueger movies, for all those youngins out there who might not know or be familiar with Nightmare on Elm Street, the title, he directed films such as The Hills Have Eyes. Yes, there was an original Hills Have Eyes from the 70s, but what was probably his most provocative film came from a script that he wrote in 1971 entitled The Last House on the Left. And this film is a very interesting film because it isn't really the typical horror film where you have a slasher that's coming after you or a the mummy that's coming after you or you're being terrorized by Count Dracula. No, this movie meddled with something darker than any of those films would have actually delved into. And that would be rape. Um, the film is about this young woman, this young girl who is staying with her family at a lake house. And while she's out walking, she gets abducted by this, this group of people, and she gets raped and presumably left for dead. It's a very graphic movie. In fact, the movie was intended to be pretty much a porno. However, as they were shooting the film, they thought that more could have been done with this film, that it would have been a waste for it to be a pornographic film. So Wes Craven made the smart decision to dial it back a bit. But when I say he dialed it back a bit, that is not saying much because there's a there's obviously nudity in the film, but it is very crucial to the story itself and the type of story he was wanting to tell. It is graphic in the sense where you do experience uh, the rape of this woman. Uh, however, you do not see anything actually happening. I shouldn't say woman. She's a young girl uh, in high school, I believe. And you do see her pretty much being left for dead. But what is interesting about this movie, the great twist that this movie has, is that the woman makes it back to her parents' house. Basically, she is near death. And her parents realize that the two men, or the, or the group of people that they left, that they let into their house, that were needing some help, were the group of people that did this to their kid. And they decide to seek revenge. And the parents take it upon them to instill that justice. And so they basically go on their own little murdering rampage. So what was interesting about the film is about how, not necessarily how provocative it was, but the twist, which was the parents got to do what every parent in the world, where if they had to experience 
experience something like this, this is what they wish that they could do. They put the power into the parents' hands, which is something pretty interesting. And as you're listening to this, for those of you who have not seen the movie, or even though actually the really good 2009 remake, Roger Ebert rated this movie, and I believe he gave this one three and a half out of four stars. And I'm going to read his quote here. And he described the film as about four times as good as you'd expect. And that the movie had something which he called hidden horror to it. Where the horror, like I said, wasn't downright scary. It wasn't a thriller, but it was a hidden horror that we all could experience. Abduction. And so that's what made this movie unique. And that's another reason why on the cover, and I know you've heard this before, for the marketing material, you know, to avoid fainting, just repeat to yourself, this is only a film, this is only a film, this is only a film. And that was a major marketing uh, ploy for this movie. And then on the, on the picture on the, on the poster was a young girl that's on the ground and leaning up against a tree. It's pretty clever marketing. And yes, I kind of went into depth about this one because I think it's very important to set the to set the stage for his very first film, which was Last House on the Left from 1972. Matt, or have you seen Last House on the Left? Are you familiar with this with his first outing? Uh yes. What did you think of it whenever you whenever you saw it? I was actually introduced to this film back in 19 19- 1997, I want to say. Um, my then brother-in-law had it, and he pops it in, and he's like, dude, you got to check out this movie. It's hilarious. <laughs> like, excuse me? <laughs> this is a guy who used to fall asleep to death metal and, and, and everything, so uh, of course he would find it but he was i mean he is like super ridiculous into films and uh so i i sat down to watch this movie with him thinking okay this has got to be something stupid or whatever or maybe it's going to be a b movie or something and i'm like this is this is rather disturbing um especially as um I mean, especially as Estelle starts, you know, uh, getting revenge and whatnot. Um, that fellatio scene is uh, something out of every man's nightmare. You, you'll, you like, turn down blowjobs for a while after that. Quite a while. Um, but no, I'm sorry, I digress. It, but it really, it really said, I had always just thought, oh, this is just the cheesy, um, this is just the cheesy horror guy, right? And it wasn't until this movie that I truly started taking Wes Craven seriously. And um, I, I got to tell you, it, it's a it's a good movie to get started on him. If you're if you're interested in his filmography, you should start here. Start here. Don't start anywhere else, unless of course you already have. But if you're going to take it for real, start here. Anyway, carry on, sir. Alrighty, and then his second film, The Hills Have Eyes, from 1977. This is the second film that he wrote and directed. And this is a very interesting movie. This is something that they call exploitation horror. 
And for those of you who do not know what exploitation horror means, an exploitation horror genre of film is basically an exploitation film, but in a horror film setting. Exploitation film is a film that tries to exploit something, exploit a current trend or a genre even. And usually it has something to do with sex, violence, or even uh, anything sensual, like uh, love, romance, relationships, infidelity, uh, all the above. And a lot of the movies that are associated with exploitation films are B-movies. And The Hills Have Eyes is a very successful B-movie. And in fact, the movie was so successful... It is technically an A movie, and I think it is an A movie, especially for the genre. It is a very, very well-made film. Uh, I even rewatched this. I actually rewatched all of these within the past week to freshen up, and every time I watch this one, I thoroughly enjoy it, more so each time. It, it, it ages well, because you realize how unique this is compared to not only his other films, but to other horror movies that would be released uh, throughout the 80s, uh, or actually throughout the late 70s and the 80s. So The Hills Have Eyes is about a family that's taking a trip from New York City to California, and they're in the middle of nowhere in the West, and they decide, actually the father, who is a retired police officer, decides that, you know what, I really want to go check out this old mine. That's Again, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of a desert. So he decides to take his family in their RV and just drive down this dirt path, and then their tire busts, and the car doesn't work, and they're just all stuck there in the middle of the desert. And the dad decides, well, you know what, I came here to see this goddamn mine. I'm going to go see this mine. So he decides to walk away. Well, little do they know that there are people hidden in the hills that are planning their demise. Yes, that is right. Their demise. In the actually in the in the remake of the film, they decide to take it one step further, which shows you how it was unneeded and they made it the site of a uh, of where they used to test nuclear bombs back during World War II. And so these people were the result of all the nuclear bombs that were going off, and they were all deformed and all that jazz. But this one doesn't really meddle with all the deformed people. It's the tension and the real-life horror that uh, Wes Craven produces, to which this movie actually does succeed. So I'm going to go through my notes here. These were the days when a spider crawling on a sympathetic character's jacket... Or, uh, or a particular piece of clothing of that character that's laying on a couch was actually creepy and in a way unnerving. And this is when character exposition and the just-so-happen type of dialogue, you know, for example, in this movie, you know, just-so-happens that the police force gave me a gun when I retired. And that's what happens in this movie. You know, the, guy, the dad's like, well, good thing I have a gun that the police force gave me three days ago that I can keep with me. This is the time when all that stuff can happen, and it actually worked out, you know? And it's not as much of an annoyance as it is nowadays. Or possibly it was actually good directing on Wes Craven's part. Because, as you will know, that when a character does those just-so-happens, just-so-happens I have a gun, that doesn't necessarily mean 
they're smart enough to use that gun in the smartest way possible, if that makes sense. And ultimately, that's kind of what happens or does not happen in this movie. And unlike other horror flicks, Wes Craven wasn't focusing on sex and gore, but instead on the storytelling and the tension. You don't need to see tits because it was a common thing for young people to make out in their cars or be left in a secluded area where absolutely anything could happen, and help wasn't as easily obtainable. And I'm saying this because in the movie, there's a couple, they're making out in the back of a station wagon or or in the back of a car, yet, you know, you know that they're going to be doing it. But you don't have to see anything to get that rise. And it kind of shows you that, well, I mean, back in the day, a lot of people used to make out in their cars. Or they used to be out in the middle of the woods and make out, and that's really all you needed to have that tension. It wasn't until the 80s where you had to throw in the, the tits and the sacks to get the people in to see the same shit that you see in every single horror movie. You know, it just kind of gave people a reason to go and watch it. But it doesn't add anything to the film. And in a way, these early Wes Craven movies, especially, well, I mean, mostly The Hills Have Eyes... It goes to show you, you don't need to have all that sex for the film to be provocative and to be tension-filled. The movie created tension and the unexpected via the character dynamics. For example, throwing a baby into the mix, which ultimately gets kidnapped. Also, unlike with The Last House on the Left, the parents die off, leaving the kids to seek revenge. And the tension also is created by the screaming and the whining girl, as well as the dog that growls when you really don't want the dog to growl when all the bad guys are around. You know, and it just makes you as a viewer nervous as shit, and you just really want them to shut the fuck up. (laughs) You know, and, and and it's very interesting, and it's very fun, and it's well made, because... You just love, you love to hate those type of characters where you, you just wish you could reach into the screen and wring their goddamn necks. You know, the movie is, it's raw without jeopardizing the film's integrity. And really, that is ultimately one of the best comments you can give to a film. It's raw without jeopardizing its integrity. Again, you don't need all the sex and the nudity and all the all-out gore to make this movie a terror film you know you don't need that at all yes there is blood yes you see the guts of a dog you know but you don't it's not throughout the movie again it doesn't jeopardize the film's integrity and so the hills have eyes is one of wes craven's probably top three films for sure matt are you familiar with the hills have eyes unfortunately my first experience was the remake with the um with the nuclear waste fallout shit and all that kind of crap. So I did not, after that, I was like, I I can't see how the source material would be any better. So I did not go back. Do check it out. It is definitely worth watching. Uh, I think on VOD, uh, you can get it. I mean, I should have, especially knowing his capabilities, you know, with last house on the left. I just, um, I guess wrongfully assumed that it was the same subject matter rehashed in the remake where it that is not the case. So 
We now move to 1981 with Deadly Blessing, and I am not really going to say much about this movie at all, uh, because this is the first of Wes Craven's disappointments. Obviously, with Wes Craven, you can see a little bit of his flair throughout it, and even if in the right mood, you might actually enjoy this movie. But this was Deadly Blessing from 1981, and this one had uh, Sharon Stone. This was actually her first movie that she was in. This was the one about the Amish family, or uh, about the local farm in Amish country, and shit happens. So check it out if you would like. Uh, or if uh, this is actually one of your favorite movies of Wes Craven's, send us uh, an email, and uh, we will definitely talk about it <laughs> at a later date. After Deadly Blessing, Wes Craven wrote and directed... His send-off to the 1940s and 1950s campy monster movies, The Swamp Thing from 1982. Swamp Thing, Swamp Thing, Swamp Thing. This movie, I, it's a guilty pleasure. I mean, it is so well made. People crap on it so much because I don't think they realize what he was trying to do. He was trying to make his own The Creature from the Black Lagoon. It wasn't quite as successful because he even falls into some of the tropes that he was trying to avoid. The movie is still good and very entertaining. And sometimes it's, I mean, it's even funny when it's trying not to be funny. But again, it's entertaining. Um, go through my notes real quick. Uh, this one is about a, a, a guy, a scientist in the middle of a swamp. Uh, these people decide they want to steal his chemical that he created that brings uh, that that brings life to plants, and he gets thrown into a swamp with this potion in it or with this chemical in it. And of course, like all the classic C B grade monster movies, he becomes that chemical. That chemical gets all over him. He he becomes the swamp thing. Uh, again, this was written and directed by Wes Craven, and this one starred Louis Jordan, Adrian Bardot, or uh, Adrian uh, Barbu, Ray Weiss. And uh, my notes here this movie, it has uh, cheeky jokes, very cheeky jokes, like, quote, she's got the IQ of a phone number, end quote. Cheeky, old-fashioned jokes like that, that kind of brings out the charm of the movie once you get used to it. Everything about this movie does scream C-grade 50s sci-fi horror, uh, especially the ending battle between the two, the, the good Swamp Thing and the evil Swamp Thing. You can just tell that they're trying not to get each other completely wet or it'll ruin the costumes. The movie is definitely a C-grade 50s sci-fi horror, uh, right down to the wipe transitions. And the Swamp Thing itself looks like it's trying to be a distant, disfigured cousin of the creature from the, of the Black Lagoon. Um, and when I mean right down to the, to the wipe transitions from the old 50s movies, is that if you watch those 50s movies, uh, actually a good example would be from the Brady Bunch, or even from the original Star Wars movies, where you see... To, trans, uh, to transition from one scene to another, they use something called wipe tra transitions, where you see that bar move across, that suddenly it's creating like these different shapes and whatnot. Well, in this movie, they do the corniest wipes that you could think of, like the curtain going down and the curtain going up and the circles going, bubbles even, to transition into the next scene. That it's so corny and it just screams out total camp. 
the elegant sounding aristocrat leader of the bad guys just felt super out of place, but again, in all the right reasons. But it does work out. Everything is consistently cheesy, so nothing is out of place. But what does save this movie from being horrible is Wes Craven's storytelling in his direction, as well as his use of space in atmosphere. You know, it feels like you are in a swamp while all this stuff is going on. Craven's intentions are made clear just by the title Swamp Thing. It's retro and not menacing, terrorizing, or mysterious sounding as the last house on the left, or the hills have eyes, but the Swamp Thing is definitely a creature film of its own. It's definitely worth checking out. What makes this movie special, like all of other Wes Craven's really good films, is that his movies are effective because they represent the culture of the time. You know, like when babysitters only had a landline which easily could have been tampered with. And that brings us to some of his later films, like A Nightmare on Elm Street. After Swamp Thing, Invitation to Hell from 1984, he did The Hills Have Eyes Two. In 1984, he did A Nightmare on Elm Street, which we will talk more in detail about later on in October when we cover all these films. Real quick here, he ends up doing Deadly Friend in 1986, another lower film of his. Uh, Another great one is The Serpent in the Rainbow featuring Bill Pullman. This one is very interesting because it's about voodoo in Haiti. Uh, What makes this movie special? I think it's great. Everything from the story to the atmosphere to even the the horror dream scenes that Bill Pullman experiences throughout. It is definitely a good hard R movie due to how graphic it can be. And, you know, there are boobs in it, so I guess that's a plus for uh, you boob guys out there. If you haven't seen this one, you definitely have to check it out. Not only is it because it was made in 1988 and it pertains to voodoo, but it does feature Bill Pullman. Now, moving up from there, he ends up doing the sh- uh, he ends up doing Shocker about the bad guy who gets electrocuted and he ends up terrorizing people through electricity, through their TVs and whatnot. And that was kind of his ultimate downfall movie right there where people just kind of gave up the idea that he was the father or the master of horror because that movie, a lot of people just really don't like it. But there is some charm to it. And it, again, that could be a surefire guilty pleasure for you diehard Wes Craven fans out there. Uh, another movie from 1991, uh, The People Under the Stairs, about evil people under the stairs. I actually rewatched this movie for the first time in a good 15 years or so last night. A few notes about that one. Social commentary abounds in this movie. It it deals with the poor black folk that live in the ghettos of of Harlem or uh, some really poor uh, areas of New York City. This movie is more heavy on the social commentary, which people kind of got turned off by. But the movie itself has this goofiness and quirkiness that comes across unintentional. However, there is some charm in that West, well, I guess that West Craven charm to it. So I even recommend this peop, uh, this movie to some people. Again, that was The People Under the Stairs. In 1994, he ends up doing The New Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, the final original 
Nightmare on Elm Street movie, where that is where he introduces, where he basically does a fresh take on the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Great movie. That is probably even better than the original Nightmare on Elm Street, if not right up there. He ends up doing the really poor Vampire in Brooklyn with Eddie Murphy in 1995. Right after that, though, he has his own little renaissance with Scream and Scream 2, both in 96 and 97. However, in 1999, he does his first non-horror film called Music of the Heart, which earned Meryl Streep one of her 500 million Oscar nominations. Uh, He basically did that movie because he wanted to prove that he wasn't just a horror film director, but he was actually a filmmaker. You know, he wanted to prove that because you were a horror director doesn't mean that you can't make other films. And if you are labeled as a horror film director, that doesn't mean you're not a real director either. Uh, However, what's interesting about this film is that while promoting Music of the Heart, they also had to limit the exposure of Wes Craven's name on the promotional material. So the movie isn't known as Music of the Heart directed by Wes Craven. No, it's New Line Cinema Presents Music of the Heart with Meryl Streep. Check it out. It's great. Meryl Streep's in it. She does a fantastic job. You have Scream 3 in 2000, which was a step back for him. Curse from 2005, which was another step back for him. He did the thriller Red Eye, which is not a horror. It's a fantastic Hitchcockian type thriller with Rachel McAdams and Cecilian Murphy in 2005. That's another one I highly recommend. He did a segment of Paris Jetime entitled Pierre La Chase in 2006. In 2010, he did My Soul to Take, which is an even further step back. And the last film that he directed was Scream 4. A lot of people did like it. A lot of the younger crowd really got on board with Scream 4, and some of the critics too. But let's face it, it was a cash grab for New Line. He wanted the movie to go one way, but the producers wanted the movie to go the way that it did. More mainstream, more MTV not as good. So those are the films of Wes Craven in a nutshell, not so much a nutshell. So any comments, Matt? <laughs> nope, that, that that was definitely uh pretty exhaustive there. So um I, I think you I think you did good. And I guess you also are you you, you also have a uh rather unique idea for a three squared for next week. So why don't you go ahead and tell all of our friends and neighbors about that? Why, yes, Matt. Uh, Next week for three squared, we will be doing what we think are three unique self-reflexive films from the self-reflexive genre. And what I mean by that, self-reflexive, are films that are not limited to, but that can be self-aware. Self-commenting. It could be a movie about the movie that you are currently watching, or anything like that. A, a couple movies, as a, for it to, you know, for an example, would be Wes Craven's New Nightmare, where the movie is about Wes Craven making another Freddy Krueger movie, but then an evil spirit pr- possesses 
or conjures up a real Freddy Krueger to torment the original victim of the of Freddy Krueger in the first film. Two other movies that uh, more of you youngins out there might be more familiar with would be 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street. Those two movies are very much self-aware. But again, it's not limited to being self-aware. So yes, three unique movies from the self-reflexive genre of films. All right, and without any further ado, it is time for... The Movies! And this week's movies are Z for Zachariah, People, Places, Things, and Patchtown. Where do you want to start, Tim? Ooh. How about the Academy Award-nominated Patchtown? All right, Patchtown is a fantasy comedy musical kind of thing about a guy who is an um, who's like an orphan, basically, who was in a loving home but finds himself without his adoptive mom and goes to work in a factory where Cabbage Patch Kids are born, basically. Um, but he discovers that sinister things are going on and can he stop the evil that he has discovered in the toy factory? Um, yeah, this movie sucks, y'all. Just stay away. It's not funny. It's not well done. It's a terrible plot. The music is horrible. The acting is less than stellar. And it's pretty much just all around stupid. I actually feel like my IQ was lowered by watching this film. I give this one star. I hated this movie. Yikes. Yikes. Go ahead, Tim. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely a one-star movie. Though one positive thing about it that I can say is that it, I mean, for it being a lower budget film, it had a cool look to it, and I thought a decentish idea. However, you need a much, much better actor in the lead role to carry a movie like this, a movie that is bizarre and trying to be like Dark City slash Nightmare Before Christmas, maybe? I don't know. But the actor in this film the lead actor in this film, he comes across as too naive and awkwardly likable, which is in stark contrast to the movie itself. Now, was he supposed to come across as Buddy the Elf or not? I don't know, but it felt very out of place. However, Rob Ramsey's John, that's the lead guy there, wasn't the only ill-fitted actor or character in the movie, but it did seem as if the filmmakers hired all the wrong actors. So it wasn't just his fault. Now, to the overwhelming agreement of everybody else, somebody must have said, somebody in the production team must have stood up and said something along the lines of, let's hire singers, not actors. And everybody agreed with him and thought that was, oh, that's the best way to go. Now, it wouldn't be fair if I didn't mention the bad guy, the villain of the movie, his character is Yuri. And he is actually a character actor, the guy who plays him. I can't think of his name right now. But he was definitely 
is somewhat of a highlight of this movie, only because he looked the part, pretty much. And he, he delivered lines in a very villain-esque way that worked. However, I did at times feel like it was a ripoff of Dark City. But he is the only decent all-around performer, although he cannot lip-sync worth shit. It is distracting as hell. And the enchanting and mystical musical score and lyrics is the final yet heaviest contrast to the overall dreary tone and mood of this movie. Now, you can tell that they were trying to do something like, or trying to go for something like The Nightmare Before Christmas, but instead they come out as reaching for the idea instead of actually executing it, which is a bad position to be in. The songs themselves all feel the same. They're not entertaining, and they're really actually extremely forgettable. As a film itself, Patchtown keeps misstepping and tripping all over itself. And as the positive impressions of the aesthetically pleasing look wears off, and as the ideas stop and don't go any further than the initial idea, you then realize how absolutely dumb this movie really is. Perhaps with a better lead, and the exclusion of all the singing, I would have given this movie a more favorable review. But the single star pretty much just goes towards the technical production and the editing, which is good, considering what the editor actually had to work with. But then again, what accomplished film praises itself for being remembered solely for the editing? So yes, one star. There you go. Patch down. Don't watch it. Okay, and where do you want to go from there, sir? People, places, things. All right, the winner of the week for me, 2015 American comedy film written and directed by James C. Strauss. Uh, stars Jermaine Clement, Regina Hall, and Jessica Williams. And basically stars a guy who is a graphic novelist. He's, um, you know, trying to do everything right, goes um, and lives the life, you know, taking care of the... You know, taking care of the fam, taking care of kid, whatever, discovers his girlfriend cheating and then has to kind of pick up the pieces of his life from there, navigating as a single dad um, with an interesting career and then how to make that career go forward. Um, I, I, and, and also at the same time, succeed at life outside of professional, the professional sphere. Um, this is an interesting, it's an interesting film. I, I thought it was a, a, a cute, uplifting film. I, I can't really say that it was super funny for me, uh, mainly because I think it just, it gets a little too tropey overall, especially in the dealings with the kids and whatnot. Um, appropriately touching and, uh, overall very decent movie. Uh, great effort, in my opinion, but I just didn't think it was all that funny. I, I Again, very cute, still uplifting, still nice, but because it really wasn't all that funny, I land at three and a half stars. What do you got there, Tim? I pretty much feel the same way with this one. Uh, there's nothing particularly fresh or new about the film itself. 
nor is it very funny or well-rounded. But what makes the film enjoyable is Jermaine Clement's character, who is just a really good guy, a really good guy that does deserve to succeed by the end of the story. And why I like that so much is because usually you watch movies like this about the divorced husband or or the husband or the guy um or i mean or even i mean same goes with the wife or girlfriend or whatnot who gets separated or break up they all turn into not the greatest people you know it's kind of like the writer decided to write that in to make them seem more sympathetic because they're writing their own experiences in there and like oh man maybe if i try to put my own shitty experiences into context Maybe I'll seem more like a better person, or maybe people will understand me more and maybe won't think of me as a douchebag or anything like that. But you see a lot of movies that are kind of like, well, you do see a lot of movies that are like that. Not very much about good people or a good guy with Jermaine Klemp's character. Uh, So it's nice to see. But besides all of that, Original and witty jokes are not abundant, and the dramatic structure doesn't hold up as much as I would have liked. A lot of the jokes are rehashed from Fly the Concords. A lot of the funny jokes are rehashed from Fly the Concords. Pretty much every whenever they he does mention something about, oh, New Zealand and Hobbits, which is pretty much twice in the movie, but it's I mean, they're they're kind of big jokes in the movie. They've done that already multiple times. Even Rice Darby, who was Murray in Fly the Concords, he went off and did, oh, what was the comedy with Jim Carrey? Oh, yes, man. And they did that same thing in that movie when he went off and did his own movie. So it's it's not fresh in that regard. Really, what's holding this movie together in my mind is Jermaine Clement's character, not necessarily his performance. But I did enjoy it for the most part. I do give this one three out of five. Three out of five. Okay, well then I guess that is going to leave us with Z for Zachariah. The 2015 Icelandic science fiction thriller film based on the book by the same name. Based book by the book of the same name. Learn your prepositions, Matt. Um, yeah, it stars uh, Margot Robbie, Chris Pine, and... Chiwetel Ejiofor. Um, all right. This is basically post-apocalyptic, and you've got a lady on a farm who's kind of been spared. Um, just kind of think a la, it's, you know, a la alas Babylon. Um, and she comes across a guy who is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is a, a radiation-free zone. Uh, and then we get another guy who comes in. And, oh, look, Love Triangle. Um, I don't know. These are these are all decent actors. And I definitely... Maybe I was just in the wrong frame of mind when I watched this movie. But this movie bored the piss out of me. Um, and that was the only thing that was wrong with it. It just... It was just, for me very very slow i could not i just could not get into it it was too damn slow um i'm sorry that's that that's where i went just that's that's my thoughts two stars didn't like it but good actors 
interesting idea, poorly executed. Bring us home, Tim. Z for Zachariah is a post-apocalyptic movie that doesn't feel like a post-apocalyptic movie, which is a good thing because we have been flooded with those types of movies and these dystopian future types of flicks in recent years. All the Insurgents, Divergence, all the Maze Runner, yada, yada, yada movies, all the Hunger Games. and So it's it's nice that they did a little movie where that was just the backdrop and not necessarily in your face. It was the platform for the story to to be built upon, which is always nice. The story is simple and inventive. The performances are believable and carry most of the weight. And the filmmaker's vision itself is hardly ever dull. But what really weighs this movie down, however, is how the flick goes about progressing the story after its initial setup. For example... You have the cool setup. You have, okay, well, they they live in this valley where, for some reason, the radiation does not is not reaching them at all. Who knows? And that kind of, and especially with the title, Z for Zachariah, you know, it's the, uh, you know, touch, touches on religion a bit. The, the idea of, of this film having religious undertones comes to mind. So automatically with me, I discovered a couple levels with this movie that it's going to be playing with. And it does play around with different levels and different points of views to the film throughout the throughout the whole movie. And especially if you're one that is tied to religion, more so than I am, then you could even probably get more from this movie. However, I did read that the book itself plays around with this aspect much more than the movie did. And maybe even in a more successful way. But what really weighs this movie down is how the, uh, the movie progresses after its initial setup. And, for example, how the, how the love triangle that is established after Ejiofor and uh, Margot Robbie, which, by the way, I didn't realize Margot Robbie was in this movie until she was in this movie for, like, 15 minutes and it just clicked. Like, holy shit, that is Harley Quinn. You know, that Margot Robbie was... Uh, the opposite of Leo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street. He played his very uh, East Coast Brooklyn wife. This was a good acting turn for her. So once Ejiofor's character and Margot Robbie's character become close and they establish their own little relationship, Chris Evans' character as the lone drifter which you really don't know his backstory at all. You don't know if he's lying. You don't know if he's telling the truth. You don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. He comes into the picture and the love triangle ensues. Kinda. Kinda. I I don't think we're giving away by telling you that a love triangle happens because, again, that is just a basis, a platform, and not exactly what's going on because this is definitely a character movie, not necessarily a story type, a story-driven movie. The movie starts teetering a bit when the love triangle happens. It's established, and what then leads to the ultimate consequence at the end of the film. The result of a film that deserves bite intention delivers something more ponderous due to the many attempts to fool the audience as to exactly where this setup will ultimately lead to. The character subtext is there 
thanks to the cast itself or the cast themselves. But subtext is only an actor's idea without the proper bringing from the idea to the screen by the director himself. And that is ultimately what is missing from this film, is the proper direction of conveying what the actors are thinking, what the actors are doing, what the act, or I shouldn't say the actors, what the characters are thinking, what the characters are doing, the subtext of these characters, and properly giving that, showing all that to the audience. Because if you don't have all that stuff, it's hard for you to really get the proper footing and jive with the movie. Because you don't want the movie to be over, scratch your head and go and wonder, so what was that about? Or what exactly happened? Or, oh, is it over? You know, I'm not saying that's necessarily how you'll feel with this movie. But that is a common thing that happens where improper direction is happening within a movie. But when it comes down to it, it's a very interesting take on the post-apocalyptic drama. Very good acting, a very interesting story, and it's well-made for what it is, despite its, its issues. If you do not like slow movies, if you're not a big fan of them, if you cannot handle them, do not watch this movie. But I do give this one 3.5 out of 5 for Z for Zachariah. All right. All right, so movies next week are going to be The Visit, which will be in theaters, Aloha, which is on VOD, and Von Ryan's Express, which will be on Netflix. And that will bring us to The Spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send an email to us as well. You send those to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow me, this is Matt on Twitter, at nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that, ah, fuck it, I forgot to look something up because I'm sick. (laughs) Take care, guys, and we'll talk to you next week. Unless Matt dies from pneumonia or something. again for listening to the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com at the SLS cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>